This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Brandon Sanderson tells us about ordinary humans facing down supervillains in the Reckoners series. Then PW Reviews director Luisa Ermolino explores the most anticipated books of spring. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. So over in fiction, we have new number one and new number two. That doesn't happen every day. Things are definitely getting shook up as the the big spring books Mm. start coming out and you know, in publishing terms, it's spring, even if it still feels like winter. Right. Yeah. So uh, at, at number one, we have St. Odd by Dean Koontz. This is uh, the finale to his Odd Thomas series, the seventh book in the series. And, uh, you know, Odd Thomas is a, a fry cook who sees the dead and tries to help them. And mm. so this is his last adventure, which takes him back to his beloved hometown and the people he loves. So, uh, you know, very, very big hit there for Koontz, uh, sold about uh, a little under 24 thousand copies in its mm. first week out right um dan that book is doing very well and right. uh it'll be interesting to see where Kuntz goes from that now that he's concluded the series right. uh, it's fascinating that he's still writing i grew up reading dean Kuntz, um uh, and uh you know, it's he's, amazing he's one of those yeah. thriller authors who still as far as i can tell is doing it all himself there's no co-author right. credited um he just keeps knocking them out at number two we have the girl on the train by paula hawkins this got a starred review from publishers weekly mm-hmm. uh and in this book uh, the principal narrator of what we call a psychologically astute debut uh is rachel watson who's obsessed with her ex-husband uh and you know, during her hour-long commute uh in london she uh always has to go by the house that they shared and so she's always constantly reminded of him and uh, she also frequently spies an attractive couple who she imagines to be il- enjoying the happy ending that eluded her. Um, and then the woman of that couple vanishes and uh, is reported on the front page of the tabloids as missing. So, you know, deep suspense. And uh, we say that Hawkins deftly shifts between the accounts of the adult Rachel as she desperately tries to remember what happened, uh, Megan, and eventually uh, Anna, Tom's new wife, for maximum suspense. And the surprise pack narratives hurtle toward a stunning climax, horrifying as a train wreck and just as riveting. Mm, so that great. sounds pretty powerful. And yeah. uh, it nearly outsold the Kuntz. It's uh, up there, 22,000 some odd copies. Uh, very impressive for a debut. Sure. And, yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds great. I think that might be one to keep an eye out for yeah. uh, in, when award season comes around, because it's, uh, it's a little unusual to see a book get both acclaim uh, from the critics and uh, such a strong popular response. Right. 
And finally, down at number five was Cold, Cold Heart by Tammy Hogue. Um, we say it's a chilling psychological thriller uh, with a, a really interesting heroine, uh, a former TV reporter who uh, was captured by a serial killer and managed to escape. And mm. so she's dealing uh, with her injuries, her PTSD, um, and also trying to figure out uh, how to live her life moving forward. And at the same time, there is a new suspense thread running through her story. Uh, so we say Hogue fans will appreciate the cameo appearances of detectives Nikki Liska and Sam Kovac from earlier books. Great. So that's at number five. What's in oh, nonfiction? Good. Well, we actually, the, the list is almost exactly the same as it was last week, almost down to 25, where we have our first debut. And this is a uh, uh, TV tie-in, FX television show tie-in to the Sons of Anarchy. This is the official official collector's edition. Uh, so that's at number 25. But going up number 26 is Wes Moore uh, with his book, The Work, My Search for Life That Matters. He he was the author of The Other Wes Moore. Uh, and here he continues his um, inspirational quest for uh, a meaningful life. Um, so that's at number 26. And we do not have a review of that book in yet, but we do have one of Bill Nye, the science guy, writing with Corey Powell, Undeniable Evolution and the Science of Creation. He's been on a lot of uh, radio shows um, and even uh, um, late night uh, talk shows talking about creation and even battling um, creationists. And so he's been opening up a discussion to that. Um, And this is uh, number 41. Uh, He's pretty popular as far as, especially as far as science people go. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, it's called Undeniable. And uh, finally, uh, number 38, uh, we have a cookbook. And this is Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything Fast, A Better Way to Cook Great Food. We got a starred review. And this is uh, part of his How to Cook series. And this one is... um, putting together healthy and fast dishes uh, for every night of the week. And he does this really well. Um, uh, it's, it's laid out by when the ingredient needs to be added. So mm. it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's a pretty solid book. Uh, promises to save time. All right. Well, that sounds like uh, definitely something for those weeknight meals. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that's it on the nonfiction list. Well, we'll see if anything uh, big shakes it up sometime soon, because uh, that, that's, that's been pretty static for yeah, a while. Yeah, exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Brandon Sanderson tells us all about his new book, Firefight. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel Jose Older author of Half Resurrection Blues, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Brandon Sanderson on the line. His new book is Firefight. Hey, Brandon, so glad you could join us. Thank you for having me, Mark. So, Firefight is the second book in the Reckoner series. And, and for our listeners, could you tell us about the first book, Steelheart, and how this book and possibly the series evolved? Sure. Um, so, there's a great story behind this one. Um, I was driving on book tour. This is back in the day when I was still able to convince the publisher that I could rent a car and drive myself around. Uh, they don't <laughs> let me do that anymore because of incidents like this where I got lost in West Virginia. 
I was trying to get to Pittsburgh, um, and I was driving along, and I was lost, and my phone was out of battery, so I didn't have my GPS, and I was late, and I was really stressed out, and somebody cut me off in traffic right there on the freeway. And I had this moment of kind of uh, pseudo-road road rage. I, I'm usually a very even keel man, but in that moment, you can tell I'm a fantasy writer, because in that moment, I imagined myself blowing that car up. <laughs> this is this is how, uh, how how a science fiction geek um, has road rage. It was very cathartic. I imagined the the car exploding and flipping end over end, and I I thought in my head, you know, you're lucky person in front of me that I don't have superpowers because if you cut, just cut me off and I had superpowers, I'd blow your car up. Um, but, well, <laughs> how would you do it? How would you do it? <laughs> I, you know, just a mental blast, right? right. Or, you know, maybe shoot it from my hands. Right, depends right. on what kind of powers I had. Um, I'm a comic book nerd. There's, there are various ways to do it. Right. And uh, the, the, the important moment was I did that, and then I thought, you know, wow, if I had powers, if I had superpowers, would I go around destroying people's cars, you know, because they inconvenience me? Is that what I would end up doing? Um, here I've been writing epic fantasy novels about people gaining special powers and then using them for good and whatnot. And in that moment, I had a vision that maybe we wouldn't be trustworthy, people like myself, with powers. We got them. And that was your or- original seed. Um, Steelheart is um, a, it's in the superhero genre. Um, it's sim- most similar to the first book, Steelheart, most similar to like the Marvel films that you might see in the theaters these days. And it's about a world, our world, if people started gaining superpowers, but only evil people got them. Um, and it's kind of this sort of freedom force that's fighting against them by researching the people's superpowers' weaknesses, uh, laying traps for them and assassinating them. Wow. So this is basically all supervillains, no superheroes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the premise right there. Um, what do you do if you're... The, I mean, the main character's name is David, and he's a, he's a young man living in Chicago. Um, and uh, Steelheart, the emperor of Chicago, kills his father. And what do you do if you're a normal guy, no powers at all, and you want revenge on this magnificently powerful being who can, you know, who can fly, who's basically impervious and things like this. What do you do? Um, there's no hero you can turn to. How do you get your vengeance? How do you, uh, how do you get freedom for the city? And that was really intriguing to me. Um, the idea of, you know, what would we do as a society if people started manifesting powers like this? We can't put them in prison. They just break out of prison. We can't kill them. We can't do anything to them. Uh, you know, how would legislation, how would the government deal with the fact that there are people completely outside the law. That was really interesting to me. So is David a deliberate David and Goliath reference? Yeah, it is. I, um, <laughs> I, I wanted a name that was very normal. Mm-hmm. Um, my philosophy being that he was going to be surrounded by all these, um, these people with these, these uh, dramatic powers, and as a metaphor for the fact that he was the, the common man, so to speak, I wanted a, I wanted a normal name, and so I, I played with uh, quite a number of those, and the David and the Goliath thing just stu- stuck. Sometimes names, even in the planning stage, they just stick. Um, I can't even describe it like they be- the character becomes that name. I actually tried to change it a few times because, like, that's a little obvious. That's a little on the nose, Brandon. <laughs> um, but by then, that's who he was. Um, and I, I had trouble writing him with a different name. So in our review of Steelheart, we say that it opens another series for teens with an ultra-violent yet playful entry into the superhero genre. Uh, it sounds like you, you really uh, kind of push the envelope with the violence element. How do you know when you've gone too far, especially for younger readers? You know, that's, a, that's an excellent question because I worry about this a bit. 
one thing I like about the, the superhero genre is that um, you can kind of get away with some, like your reviewing says, playful violence. That it's, um, it's going, straying into the cartoon uh, to the point that it's um, in some ways non-threatening. Um, and yet this is a, a world where evil people are in charge and terrible things are happening. Um, a lot of people read the prologue, um, which is actually the most violent part of the entire book. And um, it sticks with them. And there are several times where I considered changing this just for that very reason. And the entire book is not actually that violent. Um, but the prologue is where, um, where one of these people, an epic, shows up in the, the bank where David and his father are you know, trying to get a loan. This is soon after um, epics have started appearing. And this guy just goes around um, killing people in the bank. Um, and it's shocking. Um, and... I used it as a as kind of a point to to build up the villain's um, steelheart. He sh- arrives, and you think that he's going to be some sort of savior figure. He's, he's described very dramatically. You think he's going to stop this other epic. You're like, all right, this is this is our story. We have this this magnificent person, and it turns out he's even worse. Um, and so it's kind of a, a reinforcement of who this person is. Um, and but at the same time. I don't want to spend too much kind of time wallowing in the violence, so to speak. Um, it's supposed to be Wiley Coyote a little bit, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Right. Um, these are over-the-top villains. That's part of the entire genre. It's part of the fun of the superhero genre. It is an extreme genre. Um, you know, the city of Chicago that I'm in, it's not just Chicago. It's Chicago that's been turned um, with superpowers to steel, and there are catacombs underneath. And it's, it's mm. very, I mean, this is, a, this is a flamboyant genre, so to speak. And uh, the whole point of, you know, the writing that I'm doing is we take something like that and we try to play it straight as possible so that it's, um, so you can buy into it. The, the, the films do the same way. If you, you look at The Dark Knight, which is my favorite superhero film, it is so flamboyant. I mean, you've got people running around in costumes, dressed like bats, um, and things <laughs> like this. I mean, it is just silly on its surface. And yet, um, Nolan is able to take that and build something very intriguing, um, very interesting, and very deep out of it. And I think that the, uh, the superhero genre allows us to do that by exaggerating some elements of society and storytelling. Um, so that they just kind of almost become a non-issue and allow you to drill in on some more personal things. So let's talk a little bit about David and uh, the second book in Firefight. Mm-hmm. Now, David continues from the first novel to the second. Uh, yes. I won't uh, uh, I, I won't uh, spoil alert here. I won't kill any, uh, anything from the yeah. first novel. But what... Um, how did that come about? I mean, did you plan on writing a second volume? And I did. Se- um, you did. I, I plotted a trilogy. Uh huh. Um, I am a uh, I'm a planner. Writers tend to fall into two main camps. I found that they're the discovery writers, who um, who write and if they plan too much, it's like they're writing the life out of their book. And then there are the planners who, if they don't have an outline, they really get lost and don't know what to do with their story. And I'm, I'm in the latter group. I've got to have a good plan. I've got to know where I'm going mm-hmm. so that before I start writing my book. Um, so I knew that this was going to be a trilogy. Um, from that point, um, I, was, I was left with um, some interesting decisions to make because as a writer, the type of writing I like to do I like to have really engaging and interesting settings. I'm, um, I'm a fantasy novelist at heart, and I like nice visuals and places that feel different and unique. And 
I, I knew I was going to have to change cities, which was one of the big things, since the first book focuses so much on Chicago and um, things like that. I knew it was going to be a little bit jarring to people that the second book was going to take place somewhere else. But I also knew that David would be the thread that keeps all three of these uh, stories together. Right, that makes sense. So where does the second book take place after Chicago? It takes place in New York, actually. Um, I try to pick cities that I'm fairly familiar with. Um, Chicago, New York, and Atlanta are the three cities for the three books. There are places I've gone um, that, I've, um, that I've stayed at and things like this. And I had this great vision for Manhattan that had been sunken meaning, you know, the water level rises. I had to do some, um, some interesting uh, backflips mentally with physics to make this happen, but where the, the, the skyscrapers had become uh, little islands in the water, and people lived on the tops in these uh, shanty towns connected mm. by ladders. Um, so it's almost like you turn Manhattan into Venice and put shanty towns on top of the buildings, and it was this really engaging, interesting image to me. So... I That's see. where we are. I see what you mean by uh, wanting to create these these worlds, uh, and and that's that's a really evocative image right there. So so how did you do that? I'm just curious as someone who knows that you know, Manhattan's on a big old bed of granite, so it's hard to yep. sink. Um, yeah. So did you raise um, the water? How did you make that happen? Well, fortunately, I'm dealing with uh, people with superpowers, and so um, the primary antagonist that I built for the second one, uh, Regalia, is what we call a hydromancer. She has power over water, and she has flooded the city um, intentionally because her powers work where she, when she's close to water. She can control it. She can manipulate it. Um, she can see through it and things like this. So if she wants to control her domain, she needs lots of ready access to water. Um, so we actually, if you, when you approach uh, Manhattan in the book on a boat, you see that you're actually, there's a bulge, there's a hill of water that she's holding up. Um, and if she were to die, that would all flood back out. Um, it's there very unnaturally. Wow. So um, this is the first time you've mentioned a female character in the, the series. The first book sounds like it's got a lot of daddy issues. Um, tell us about the, the other girls and women who appear in these books. Sure. Um, so we have a, we have a, a cast of characters, the, um, the Reckoners themselves, um, in the first book. These are, this is the group of freedom fighters, kind of the shadowy freedom fighters. Um, we, have a, we have a group of um, uh, just a, a team that David gets to know, and there, there's quite a few different characters in it. I don't know if I even have time to go over them all because we actually have a separate, different team in the second city to introduce a new group of characters. But uh, Regalia, the uh, primary antagonist, she's um, the, the, the villain for the second book. She, I tried to think of, all right, I did Steelheart as kind of this powerful, punch-you-in-the-face type, um, type evil villain. I'm like, all right, let's go the other direction. What are some of the most um, distressing and potentially evil things that I could come up with? And um, what I ended up doing was, um, was taking the uh, judge shows from daytime TV, those judges <laughs> who are so mean to everybody, um, and saying, what if one of them got superpowers? This is, this is Judge um, Judy with, with uh, lightning coming out of her fingers. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, if, what, if, uh, what if Judge Judy were, were um, an imperious ruler of an entire city? And that was my seed, um, was, uh, was a, one of these judge shows, them getting, uh, getting way too much power and being able to impose their will on an entire city like they do on those, um, those courtrooms. And that was really <laughs> scary to me. So I'm like, okay, there is a villain. Um, and that's who Regalia is. She's, uh, she's the ruler of Manhattan. Um, and uh, she was an old-time judge, uh, TV show judge, before she gained her superpowers. So that's where the name comes from, the judge's Regalia. Yep. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously you love creating worlds. Uh, 
as a as a kind of change of pace, you've also gotten to play around in one of the most famous epic fantasy worlds of all time. What was it like finishing Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time books? Man, it's it was indescribable. Um, I started reading the Wheel of Time books when I was 15. The first one came out around, it was only like eight months after I discovered fantasy novels and started reading um, them myself. And so I remember picking this book off off the shelf when it was first out and saying, oh, this looks like a nice big thick one, um, and started <laughs> reading them. And I had been reading them ever since, a uh, 20-year journey technically 17 from the point that um, I picked up that first one and um, I got the phone call. Um, I, the weird thing about this was I didn't apply for it uh, to do this. I was chosen without me knowing I was being considered. Um, I just got a phone call one day from Robert Jordan's widow asking me if I would, I would finish a series, which was, number one, mind-numbing. Like, right. I, I didn't know her. I didn't know him. Mm. I didn't know I was being considered. I just got a phone call one day. Um, but beyond that, I, as a fan of the series and having interacted with the fandom over the years, I knew how hardcore this fandom was. Um, and I knew they would, uh, they would burn my house down <laughs> if, I, uh, if I ruined their book. Um, and so suddenly I had this like, big choice to make. Do I say yes um, and potentially ruin you know, the greatest epic fantasy series of my generation? Um, or do I say no and take the coward's way out? Um, and then, you know, risk someone else getting a hold of it and them ruining it, uh, which felt like, you know, this sort of catch-22. And in the end, I, I called back Harriet. Uh, I actually wrote her an email uh, the next day, and I said, you know what, I've decided I want to do this because I feel that if Robert Jordan can't do it, then I want to do it so that it's in the hands of a fan. Um, and it was like, I described like, you know, she handed me all of his notes and everything he'd been working on. It's like if you got to be the first person to, vi to visit Da Vinci's workshop before or right after he passed away and, you know, mm -hmm. hands on on all the stuff and see the, the sketches half drawn and the ideas half formed. It was really um, illustrative for me as a writer kind of looking at the master and seeing what he was doing. Um, and it was also just a, a very wild ride. It was exciting. It was interesting. Um, it was challenging. It's the hardest thing I've ever done professionally by a long shot. Um, and the fandom turned out to be really awesome. They were great people. They welcomed me in. They did say, um, you know, they said things like, you know, we're rooting for you. Do a great job. By the way, if you screw it up, we will uh, kill you and dance on your grave. But we're working for you. I mean, they were very nice about their, uh, their kind of half-handed threats. But at the end of the day, uh, they were a great fandom. Uh, they treated me very well. And, um, yeah, I, I can't really even describe, like I said, how wonderful yet daunting an experience it was. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Brandon Sanderson, author of Firefight, and he's telling us about uh, taking uh, taking over the series after Robert Jordan died. Uh, and 
you had said that you had gotten a call from his widow. I've got two questions. First of all, what was it that she said? What was it that she had read of yours to know that you were the perfect person for this? And secondly, how difficult was it to write in, I'm assuming, a voice that is not yours? Well, those are both excellent questions. Um, so, Harriet, let's talk a little bit about Harriet. Harriet McDougall, Robert Jordan's wife, um, she was actually his editor first. Uh, when Tor Books, when Tom Doherty founded Tor Books, she was the person he hired as her editorial director, and she was the um, editor of uh, books such as Ender's Game, was one of her books, uh, Glenn Cook's Black Company. She, she did a lot of fantastic work for Tor, and she discovered Robert Jordan in a bookstore one day. Mm-hmm. Um, he was browsing the section. They had a conversation. He mentioned he's a writer. She asked him to send him some stu- her some stuff, and um, she liked it and eventually published it and eventually married him. Um, so hmm. when he, before he passed away, he asked her to find somebody to finish the series. Uh, she, she said, you know, she felt like he didn't want to confront his own mortality. He didn't want to do it himself. So she considered this a dying request, and she started the hunt as soon as the funeral um, and started asking people and gathering a list of names. And famously, she says, my name was not on that list. Nobody <laughs> mentioned me to them. I only had two books out. Uh, nobody knew who I was. But at the same time, like many fans of Robert Jordan, I was working on and composing a uh, eulogy for him on my website. Um, And my eulogy was not that long. It's uh, three or four paragraphs. Um, But it just talks about how much I enjoyed his writing, how much a a big influence it was on me as an aspiring writer in the early days of my career. Um, It talked about me picking my publisher based primarily on the fact that they published Robert Jordan. and one of Harriet's friends printed this off. Uh, they were looking on the Internet for nice things written about Robert Jordan and printed it off and gave it to her and said, here, you should read this one. Uh, so Harriet read it and said, huh, he's a writer. Um, he's at the same publisher. So she called up Tom Doherty um, and said, send me this guy's books. And Tom tells me, he says, well, I sent her your second book, Brandon, because people in the business, we know, first books are always, you know, we, you always read the second book if you can. <laughs> so um, he sent her Mistborn, which is the first, my second book and the first of um, the trilogy that is kind of what made me famous, so to speak. If you can use the word famous for, uh, for any writers at all, I don't, I don't know if we really count as famous. Um, but it, it's the book that put me on the map. Um, and it was out, though the sequel wasn't yet. And so Harriet got that. And then she actually, she, she looked through it a little bit, and then that's when she called me, because she said she didn't want to do a bunch of research on me before finding out if I was interested. So I got that phone call when she had Mistborn in hand but hadn't read it yet. And so I, I get this voicemail, actually. I get up in the morning, and it says, Hello, Brandon Sanderson. This is Harriet McDougall Rigney, uh, Robert Jordan's widow. I was wondering if you would um, call me back. There's something I want to talk to you about. So I, like, Boy. just about dropped the phone, right? I'm just like, what? Um, and so I tried getting a hold of her, but she was out getting a massage. And so I couldn't <laughs> get a hold of her. Um, and so I called my, my editor, Tor, and he didn't answer. But that's not surprising. He never answers. So I, I called my agent. He always answers. But that day, he didn't answer. And so I couldn't get a hold of anybody. I'm, like, freaking out. So I go up and I, I tell my wife, Robert Jordan's widow just called me. And my wife's like, well, what did she want? And I said, I don't know. Um, and so I eventually got a hold of someone at Tor, the publisher, uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, one of the editors there. And he's like, oh, that. Yeah, it's what you probably think it is. 
And I'm like, what do I think it is, Patrick? He's like, I got to let her tell you. So I just sat holding my phone, staring at it for a few minutes until Harriet finally did call me back. And she said, well, I was just wondering if you would be interested. Um, I'm putting together a short list of people who would be interested in finishing my husband's work. And I'm like, ah, you know, how do you respond to that? It's what I had thought it might be, but man. Um, and so that's why I wrote her that email I mentioned later. I, on the phone, I just kind of blah, couldn't even force out words. So the next morning, I wrote her an email and said, Dear Harriet, I promise I'm not an idiot. Um, <laughs> I thought a lot about this, and um, I, I do want to do it. Um, then she went and read Mistborn. So I had to wait like a month um, going on tour for the second book, thinking about uh, what she's reading the book right now. How big is this list? Turns out my name was the only name on the list, but she didn't want to, you know, she didn't want to indicate that to me without reading my books first. Um, so she read Mistborn. She really, really liked it. Uh, she called me back about a month later and said, I've decided I want you to do it. Um, so after an excruciating month not being able to tell anybody that I was being considered for this, um, I was... Uh, flown to Charleston. We signed a quick contract, easiest contract of my life, because I said to my agent, just take whatever they offer. I want to do this. And, um, and I was picking up the notes and things from her house in person by December. Now, on your second question, matching Robert Jordan's voice, I did a few test um, attempts at matching his voice, and I found that I was straying into parody. Um, that it was going to turn into a caricature. Um, and I spent several months while I was rereading the series and building an outline, um, trying different forms of writing. And at the end, what I decided was I would try to match the character voices and not Robert Jordan's voice. Um, and this was a, a distinction to me as a writer, that if I got the characters to sound like themselves, even if they were using you know, sentence structure that was slightly different, um, it would feel like you had the same actors in the film, but the director might have changed. Um, and that worked for, like, the Harry Potter films. Those have several different directors through the whole films, but they, since it's the same actors, they, they have a continuity together. And that, that was the end sort of feel that I strove for. Um, yes, I use, like, Flagstone, and J Robert Jordan uses Cobblestone, or vice versa, or something like that. And, you know, I will use paragraphs like this. He'll put his, um, his direct in-thought uh, comments for, from, re, um, from characters at the end of a paragraph, and I'll put them in their own paragraph in between two paragraphs of narrative. You know, stylistic choices like this. Mm. Um, but since the characters feel like the same people, hopefully, um, the books read like they are still Wheel of Time books. And they, I did adapt my style to be a little more descriptive um, and a li little bit more in the, the vein of Robert Jordan, but I didn't try to imitate him. Wow. So uh, after all that, was it hard to go back to writing your own material? Um, no, because I never stopped. Um, mm. I, I write pretty compulsively. And so in between revisions and drafts, because the drafts, you know, you, you send a book to the editor, you're not going to get it back for three or four months. And in between that, I would write other books, um, work on other things. Um, and so I had, um, I was only really able to write, I was able to write two books during writing the Wheel of Time books, and one was very short, but I did manage to do um, my own projects at the same time. In fact, the prologue to Steelheart, I wrote while I was on tour. I was on tour during the Wheel of Time era, and I wrote only the prologue because I didn't have time to write the whole book, but I quickly jotted down that prologue, um, you know, the, the, where 
only evil people have superpowers and things like this. And it was a really engaging, powerful prologue. I'm like, I'm going to have to do something with that someday. But then I set it aside and was only able to come back to it like four years later. So you've mentioned touring a lot. You keep saying, while I was on tour, while I was touring, I was traveling. We're talking to you. Uh, you're in a hotel room right now, uh, presumably on tour for Firefight. Uh, is that exhausting? I always thought that these these author tours just sounded so tiring and like they would really interfere with the writing. Yeah, they do get they do get tiring. It's it's an interesting balance because I do want to meet the readers. Um, in a lot of ways, what I'm doing is a as a writer right now is very similar to what writers used to do. Um, if you wanted to be a writer back in the day, you had to find a wealthy patron to support you while you did this frivolous thing of, uh, of writing books. Well, my wealthy patron is the general public, uh, the people who, who read my books and who support me. Um, and so I do want to you know, have a chance to thank them to sign their books. You know, they don't ask very much of me. They just, they want a book um, signed and they want to talk to me for a few minutes. Um, and yet, there are so many places I can go um, and so many people who want to talk to me that it, it can get really um, exhausting and time-consuming. So finding that balance is a difficult one, I will say. Um, right now, I'm not sure if I found it yet. One of the issues is I do publish my teen books, um, the Reckoner series, with uh, Random House. Um, primarily because a friend of mine, James Dashner, had spoken so highly of his experience um, with Delacorte, and so I, I took the Reckoners to them. Um, having two publishers means that you know I don't want to give eat stiff either one of them, so to speak, when it comes to the amount of time that I'm doing touring for them. And so when one asks me for you know an event, and then another one does, I, I try to say yes to both of them, at least in an equal amount. Um, and that, uh, that has made it a little bit more difficult, certainly. Um, I'm sure that we'll figure out eventually uh, how, to, how to manage this and you know, do the overseas tours. I'm going to the United Arab Emirates and to Taiwan um, in the next few months. Um, it's just a balance that we have to get down. People don't warn you about this. Um, when you become a writer, you, know, you spend your life sitting in your basement telling stories, right? And you're like, oh, I just want to tell these stories. It's a very solitary thing. Um, and then when you, when you make it, um, suddenly you become a performer. You, you've got to get up on stage. You've got to talk to people. And it's a good thing that I'm, uh, I'm kind of an extrovert, extrovert that yeah. I enjoy it. I, I can't imagine how hard it would be if you were an introvert and suddenly said, yeah, we need you to go talk to a thousand people, do a speech, and then meet each one of them person after person. I, I think it would be just nerve-wracking. And uh, speaking of being an extrovert, you also uh, co-host a Hugo Award-winning podcast called Writing Excuses. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there you are doing even more talking, though perhaps <laughs> with fewer people right in front of you. How did that happen? Where did that come from? So it happened because my brother, my brother who barely reads anything, who now has a Hugo Award, which is hilarious to me. The Hugos are the, uh, the most prestigious uh, award for science fiction fantasy. So it's, it was a big honor to win. Um, he came to me and said, during the early days of podcasting, it was about oh, eight or nine years ago, um, and said, hey, you ought to do one of these podcast things. I think you'd be really interesting, um, and I think your fans would like to hear from you. And I kind of dismissed him because he wanted to do a radio drama. He wanted to do something scripted, um, and I just didn't have the time for that. 
Um, and it, it wasn't that interesting to me. But because he'd mentioned podcasts, I started listening to a bunch of different po- podcasts. Uh, Grammar Girl, NPR, um, various ones on uh, Magic the Gathering, which is kind of my geek hobby. Um, and <laughs> I was finding that um, there weren't there wasn't a writing podcast out there and the way I wanted there to be one. And my history as a writer, basically, um, most of my books have come because I've said, man, I wish there were a book like this. Well, I guess I better just write one like that. Um, I wish, you know, Mistborn came from, cause came because I said, I wish there were more heist novel fantasies. Um, and I said, well, I guess I'll write one. And here, there was not a writing podcast, I hadn't found one at least, um, of the, the style I wanted, something very quick. A lot of podcasts I found, they, they spent way too much time. You'd listen to this thing for three hours, and they'd barely get to the topic. Um, a lot of rambling and whatnot. I wanted something on topic. I wanted something where a group of writers got together and shared different experiences and different methods um, because one of the things we run into in writing is that a lot of books and um, professors pretend there's only one way, their way. Um, and I disliked that a lot when I, was, when I was breaking in and learning to write because it seems to me that a lot of these uh, writers use completely different methodologies. I, I mentioned, uh, you know, or I, I, I've thought a lot about discovery writers versus uh, architects, you know, the planners versus the non-planners. Um, and if one who is naturally a planner tries to just discovery write, sometimes it's a complete disaster. And yet these are two types of writing that create very good books. Stephen King is a discovery writer. Orson Scott Card is a planner. Um, and so I thought there's, there's lots of strategies for writing. I want to get a bunch of different writers together and have them talk about their strategies so it can be a discussion or even an argument about what works, what doesn't work, so that, uh, that writers can listen to it and say, yeah, I'm going to try that. Or, oh, that, that right there, I'm failing doing that. Let me give it a try, or uh, maybe I understand my process better. So I got together a number of my writer friends who are doing different things. Uh, Dan Wells, uh, who writes horror books and teen thrillers. Uh, Howard Taylor, who does uh, comic books. Uh, he does a webcomic. He's a hard science fiction webtoonist. And eventually Mary Robinette Cole, who does um, sort of historical fantasy and science fiction, as, long as, as well as some really great short fiction. Uh, she kind of does a little bit of everything. Um, and together we run this podcast every week where we talk about writing topics and we try to really keep it snappy and drill down into a, an idea. So um, we're unfortunately about out of time because uh, it sounds like you could go on talking for a long while about uh, your podcast and everything else that you have going on. Uh, so just uh, so we have an idea, where are you heading next on your tour? And uh, once that's done, where can people find you online? I'm going to be heading out to it to Houston and Atlanta next, followed by Philadelphia and uh, Lexington. I think that are the next two stops. Uh, you can find lots more about me at brandonsanderson.com, and there's an events tab that you just look on the side. It lists all my events, all the places that I'm going to be. Um, there's also, if you happen to have never listened to one of my books, I have a free book on my website. It's called Warbreaker. Um, it's a standalone epic fantasy novel, and I just put it on there because I figure um, that readers... What they're giving me is their time. Uh, the money is a little less, uh, less important these days than people's time, and so I'll give you the book for free so you can try out my writing and see if it's something you like. Well, that sounds like a great experiment. Maybe next time we'll uh, have you back on the show to tell us how that's worked out. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been a wonderful experience. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Brandon Sanderson. You can find his book, Firefight, in stores right now. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews Director Louise Aramolino talks about our upcoming spring announcements issue, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Joanne Bourne. I'm the author of Rogue Spy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino is here to tell us all about the most anticipated books of spring. Hi, Louisa. Hi. So, um, by spring, we really mean spring and summer. Um, More or yes. less. And actually a little bit of winter. We start The books go from February 1 to July 31st. Great. A twice a year um, endeavor. So describe for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, kind of what, what the announcements issue is. We do this twice a year, uh, and it, it certainly occupies a fairly major part of our lives for that time. Well, what we do, it's kind of like a horse race, because a lot of the books we haven't seen. Mm-hmm. So we um, curate them based on what we know, our instincts, and also how uh, what kind of a push the publishers have behind them. And just, it's really our expertise. And we're saying that we're guessing, um, educated guessing, mm-hmm. that um, these are going to be the big books for fall. A lot of them have... Uh, famous authors, a lot of them have huge print runs, a lot of them just have quirky subjects that grab us. Right. And it's 18 major categories, and each editor has their category of expertise, and it's a big job, but in the end, we end up with something really interesting, and we hope something that'll be really helpful in planning for the industry. So these are for uh, librarians, booksellers, people who are looking at what books they might want to stock in the upcoming months. Exactly. Yeah, books to look out for. And I find when I'm putting together the list, I'm looking both at... Big uh, announced publishing, first printing runs, mm-hmm. um, big names, but also, like you said, some of the more quirky ones. Some things that I think, wow, this could be this could be fun. This may not get a push other than this issue right here, and we, and I may list one or two titles in that, especially in our top ten. We have like sixty that we list, and out of those, we pick ten per right. category. Uh, I've I found myself doing the same thing, um, particularly in, in science fiction. I like to highlight stuff that doesn't get a lot of press or attention, yeah. like small short fiction collections, small press books. Right. Um, and in romance, I really aim for a, a variety to look at the diversity of the genre. So it's, it's one of the few places where you're not going to see people focusing on a particular type of romance, like... Uh, you know, just historical romance or just contemporary romance, but you'll have everything from you know, Amish romance to romantic suspense, uh, just to 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 get a sense of the the breadth of the genre. And do you look at smaller and little known publishers as well when you're putting together your lists? I do my best. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to an extent, we depend on what publishers send us. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's always super helpful when those small presses can get us information on the books they plan. But being a small press means you may not have that information as much ahead of time, which is why I also try and cover those books and reviews. Yeah, right, right. So, Louisa, you have, uh, one of the categories you've covered was memoir. Um, Tell us what's hot. And this is uh, our issues going out on Monday, the 26th. 
So um, give us a little preview for those listening on Friday. Well, um, what we also do is try and spot trends. Right. And something always pops up. There's a lot about, uh, well, memoir, of course, is a looking back, but it can be a lot of things. But there's a lot of looking back in my top 10 list. There's um, just kids from the Bronx telling the way it was, an oral history, which was done by Arlene Alda, who was Alan Alda's wife. And she grew up in the Bronx. And she started thinking about all the famous people that came from the Bronx and also the ordinary people. So she interviewed policemen. She interviewed um, firemen. She interviewed Colin Powell. uh, And it should be something to look forward to, to see something about that borough. And then we have um, The Odd Woman in the City, Vivian Gornick, Mm -hmm. who does beautiful memoirs. And now she's looking back as an older woman and the city that shaped her, what it was like. And she also deals with her changing and the city changing, which, of course, as we know, it really has, especially Manhattan and Brooklyn. And then there's Alan Lightman, Screening Room Family Pictures. That's a look back. And then in another vein, which is not exactly looking back historically, is uh, a book that Grand Central is really behind. There's a 200,000 printing. It's a debut by Sarah Heppola. And it's about women and alcohol and addiction. It's called Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. Oh, wow. Hmm. So that could really get some attention. And Jonathan Kozel did The Theft of Memory, Losing My Father One Day at a Time. His Mm -hmm. father was a very intellectual, educated man, and he watched him dissipate under, you know, the disease of Alzheimer's, which is a theme that's been around. It's in film now, and there's a lot of books. A lot of people are dealing with this. And then we have Judith Miller, The Story, A Reporter's Journey which is under wraps from Simon and Schuster. Oh, really? Okay. That should be a big one. And also um, a memoir of survival in Cleveland, Hope, by Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus, who were held captive for 10 years by Mm -hmm. Ariel Castro. So this is a story put together from Amanda Berry's diary. Mm. And then we have two journalists who interweave the story of looking for the girls. So that could be... Wow. Wow. A big book. So it's an exciting time. You know, memoir just doesn't stop, it seems. It keeps going. And I think it's that, you know, everyone has a story. Yeah. And if it's written well and and there's something interesting about it, we're all interested. Right. And it's all in the execution. Sometimes it's the story itself and sometimes it's how someone writes the story. Yes. Very key to nonfiction. Yeah. So it's interesting that there's a lot of uh, older history, a lot of long looks back in memoir, because I found the same thing in uh, science fiction and fantasy, that a lot of people are reimagining the past. Alternate history has always been a big part of the genre, but uh, we have... uh, there's a, a book called The Dinosaur Lords by Victor Milan, uh, which is you know, the usual knights on horseback, except the horses are dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, so, you know, a, a really interesting combination of the sort of uh, medieval fantasy that everybody knows with the idea of dinosaurs and knights on dinosaur bag. And it's the sort of thing where, you know, you just look at the cover and you're like, yes, give me this. <laughs> <laughs> and do the dinosaurs have feathers? The dinosaurs, uh, as far as I can tell from the cover art, do not immediately. 
immediately obviously have feathers, but I, I'm sure there's a whole variety of them. And I really don't know why no one's thought of doing this before. Um, and, uh, you know, there's we're entering in sort of the next generation of steampunk. So first people just thought, you know, hey, Zeppelins are cool and let's do some clockwork stuff and we'll put gears on things and it's great. Um, and now we have the next generation of authors looking at the less savory aspects of the Victorian era, the colonialism, the racism, the, the wars, and uh, working that into steampunk. And so Ian Tregellis, uh, the mechanical, uh, has the Netherlands, who you don't really think of as a, as a global power, coming up with the idea of a clockwork army. Uh, they make the, this army of clockwork soldiers, they give them limited intelligence, they enslave them with magic, and they become the world's first superpower and hold on to that title for 300 years. Uh, so that's uh, that's that's a, a fascinating sort of new look at the the history from a both a, a science fictional standpoint, looking at the technology and the ways that uh, technology influences war in particular, and also a, a magical aspect. And uh, there's a, a Jekyll and Hyde Next Generation sequel about the daughter of uh, the the famous. Uh, Dr. Jekyll, you know, the, there's uh, V.E. Schwab's A Darker Shade of Magic, uh, looks at four different parallel universes of Georgian London. So one is our world where there's no magic and one is a world of, of magic and happiness and beauty and one is uh, sort of grim and one has vanished and we will never speak of it again. And there are people who travel between these dimensions uh, in a very circumscribed and dangerous way. So. You know, it's kind of wonderful is it's a way of having history with a spoonful of sugar. Okay. Kind of like comics, right? Because sometimes. you do learn. Sometimes, yeah. And it, yes, exactly. Yeah. There, you, you learn a whole lot. I've certainly learned much more about history from historical fiction, always keeping in mind that, you know, the research is not always perfect. Right. Uh, but I've learned more than I probably remember from my high school history classes. <laughs> so that was, that was definitely the theme in the, the romance side as well. Historical romance is always very big. I think we should start putting these books in the canon in school. I agree. I, you mm. know, if, if Jane That's Austen, <laughs> if Jane Austen's work about you know, her contemporary regency is worth reading, then it's interesting to look at how authors now are imagining mm. the world of, of 200 years ago and uh, kind of what we can know from the research and what is impossible to know that we have to, you know, all, all history, all, all historical fiction is speculative fiction in yes. some ways. You know, we can't be entirely sure what was going on. We have to do as much research as possible and then just make the rest up. Right. And speaking of continuing in the vein of fiction, what about literary fiction? If you want to oh, literary fiction, list a couple have, of titles or the big ones. Again, we have Toni Morrison. Um, her new novel is called God Help the Child. Mm. Got to start PW Review, so that's one we do know. A mother learns about the damage adults do to children and the lasting effect this can have as they grow into adults, which is no big surprise, but in Toni Morrison's hands, I'm sure it's something that everyone will want to read. Yeah. There's also Kate Atkinson, who had a big book with Life After Life, and she follows up her epic with A God in Ruins, uh, which follows Ursula Todd's younger brother, Teddy, uh, who's an RAF, a RAF bomber pilot and would-be poet. And then we have a huge book from Larry Kramer called The American People, which is volume one, the first part of his magnum opus. 
um, which is supposed to be the entire history of our nation with uh, prehistoric monkeys, uh, a revised presentation of the Lincoln assassination, and a plot to exterminate homosexuals as the AIDS virus begins to spread. So it's 900 pages. Wow. Wow. Uh, It'll be curious to see how that does. Yeah, sure. And we have Kelly Link, who writes these fantastical stories, Get in Trouble. It's her first book that's published by a major house, her first adult book by a major house. She runs um, Small Beer Press Press, with Mm -hmm. her husband, and they publish her. So it'll be interesting to see um, her go mainstream. I know a lot of people are very excited about that collection. Mm-hmm. And, and people distributed sort of all over uh, various genre tastes. She definitely has a literary following as well as a speculative following. Great. And then we have bestseller Kristen Hanna, and she deals with World War II. The book is The Nightingale. It spans half a century, and it's about the secret lives of the residents of a small French town. And she focuses on the women. She did a piece for us called In My Own Words, Mm -hmm. where she talks about that there was sort of a tradition of adventure and bravery in her family, which she doesn't have. She likes to stay close to home. But she did imagine the things that women did in World War II and how they're sort of unsung heroes, Mm. women of the resistance. Great. And Mark, what about in your sections? I'd love to know a bit about uh, what's hot and upcoming in music and cooking. Well, with music, there always is one decade that has represented more than any other, and that's the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems to be I have a large number of books from the 1960s. So every time I'm putting together this list, I I try to see what trends, as Louise had mentioned, are happening and and in this one I see I see a, a lot of big books on rhythm and blues or blues singers and this is the hundredth anniversary of uh, I guess Billy Holiday would have been a hundred years uh, old uh, this year and Viking is publishing Billy Holiday the musician in the myth um, by John Zved uh, who's a professor at Columbia uh, so that's one of the big books and then we have uh, Jan Gay, who is the wife of uh, Marvin Gay, about her meeting him the fir- for the first time after uh, one of the early concerts in the uh, 60s. Uh, he died in 1983. This is called After the Dance, My Life with Marvin Gay. And uh, finally, Mark Rabowski, who's a veteran music writer. He writes biographies on uh, blues singers, rock singers. And he's coming out with one on Otis Redding called Dreams to Remember, The Legacy of Otis Redding. And finally, music producer Ellie Reed in L.A. Confidential. Um, he is talking about, uh, he kind of brings R&B up to the contemporary times, up to our times with uh, uh, Mariah Carey, Tony Braxton, Kanye West, uh, Rihanna. And he was the producer of all of those, including others like Justin Bieber, Usher, Outkast, and Pink. So he talks about his, the music industry. But on the other side of that is country western. And we've got... Um, uh, uh, I guess David Ritz is writing a biography with uh, Willie Nelson, um, and it's called It's a Long Story, My Life. And one that I'm really excited about is a a biography from uh, University of Texas called uh, John Prine, In Spite of Himself. And he was one of the great songwriters of the uh, late 60s and 70s, wrote for Bonnie Raitt, wrote some really beautifully heartbreaking songs. And uh, it was the first biography coming out from a small press, and I was just really happy to see it. Um, 
and that's uh, what we have in music. There's, of course, uh, a few others. And there's one I talk about the 1960s. And there's two books, again, that come out that are about the 1960s. And one is Another Little Piece of My Heart, My Life of Rock and Revolution in the 1960s by uh, Village Voice, uh, former Village Voice critic uh, Richard Goldstein, who is the first music critic for the Village Voice. And then uh, Andrew Grant Jackson talks about what he defines as the one year, uh, or he discusses the one year that defines the entire era of the 1960s, and that is 1965, the most revolutionary year. So, again, more 60s. And just to talk briefly on cookbooks, we talked about the country music before and uh, in music, and here we see a return, kind of like a uh, highlight of books by country western musicians and by a Texan. Yeah, so we have uh, Kimberly Schlopman, who's the founding member of the platinum-selling country music band Little Big Town. Uh, She's got Oh Gussie, Cooking and Visiting in Kimberly's Southern Kitchen. That's going to be about 150,000 first printing. And then we have Trisha Yearwood, Trisha's Table. She's returning with a uh, book called My Feel Good Favorites for a Balanced Life. So we're talking about comfort. We're talking about country. We're talking 400,000 announced first printing. And chicken fried steak. And chicken fried steak, but this is going to be a healthy one, so Uh maybe that's not made with Crisco. So. And, and then skinny finally, chicken. And skinny chicken, exactly. And finally, we have this um, Kent Rollins, who's a real uh, Oklahoma cowboy. Uh, he invites home kicks to his chuck wagon. He actually runs a chuck wagon. Hmm. And... Um, it's called The Taste of Cowboy, uh, Ranch Recipes and Tales from the Trail. And they're pretty simple recipes. He's written, uh, photographed by his wife. And I've met him uh, for a pre-publication party here. And he's uh, he's that stereotypical, what you would think, kind of weathered uh, weathered cowboy with you know weathered complexion, um, great stories. He's got the handlebar mustache, the cowboy hat, but he knows his food and he knows how to prepare for a lot of people. Well, that, so that's, that sounds very exciting. Yeah. yeah. Many, many years ago, uh, reviewing for an entirely other publication, I, I ended up reading a book called The Ethnomusicologist's Cookbook, which is about all the ways oh, that music right. and food go together in cultures around the world. So this sounds like a great, a great mix. You can listen to the music, you can read the books, you can eat the food. I'll get that yeah. cultural experience. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, that gives people a sense of what we have to look forward to in Monday's issue. I want to go to the chuck wagon. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, should, we should see if he can wheel it up outside our offices in New York and serve us all lunch. So, Louisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Always great to have you on the show. And uh, now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, this is Gay Talese. I'm the author of The Bridge. And you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another superlative author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 